So do you want to learn the secrets behind some of the most successful women in the world? Listen each week as designer Rebecca Minkoff talks to women from all walks of life, from CEOs to artists on her podcast, Superwomen, with Rebecca Minkoff. Rebecca interviews women like Katie Couric, Erica Perry, and Maria Sharapova, and shows us what life is like without the pretty filters to help you navigate through its tough issues. Each week, women talk about what it means to be vulnerable, how loss can make you stronger, standing up for yourself in the workplace, and yes, the M word, money. Each episode is so funny, insightful, and leaves you with a piece of advice you can put into action to hit your goals, no matter what they are. So listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Hey, it's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the podcast about breaking away from the cult of perfection to help you fear less, fail more, and live bolder. And today we're going to talk about something really important, something I know a lot of us don't pay enough attention to. Yep, we're going to get real brave about mental health. If you're not doing enough for your well-being right now, I want to urge you to take a step toward changing that this week. Maybe you set up an appointment with a therapist or a doctor, or commit to meditating once a day or going on a walk. Maybe the first step for you is admitting what you're going through to a friend, a partner, or even yourself. Whatever is going to help you get what you need, I want you to do it. Now, joining me to talk about getting brave when it comes to mental health is Corinne Jean-Pierre, and she's beyond impressive. Right now, Corinne's pushing for progressive change as the public affairs officer at moveon.org. And you can frequently see her on NBC and MSNBC giving sharp political analysis. She's worked on both presidential campaigns for Barack Obama and served in the White House. But her journey wasn't easy. In her new book called Moving Forward, a story of hope, hard work, and the promise of America, Corrine writes about her unusual path into politics and charts a path forward for others who don't feel like they have a voice to get involved. She also opens up about her struggles with mental health, which we discuss in a heart-to-heart you're about to hear. Before I play that conversation, I want to let you know Corrine mentions a suicide attempt. Her story is one of hope and getting the support she needs. But if you're not in the space to listen to that conversation, that's okay. Please take care of yourself. In your book, I know you've opened up a lot about mental health and how it's affected your life. And, you know, I was thinking when I was reading that, like the first thing I thought about was what does your parents think? You know, my I come from an immigrant family. And I know oftentimes like when I'm putting myself out there, the first thing I'm thinking about is what is my mother going to say? You know, as you were asking the question, I was just thinking to myself, I never talked to my parents about mental health. In my book, I, I talk about, like you just mentioned, in a very open and raw, honest way about getting to a point in my life where I tried to take my life. And even in that moment, my parents didn't even know about that. They didn't know about that, not even today. It's, I put it in the book, and I was wondering if they were going to ask me about it, and they haven't. 
And it was a conversation that I actually have never, ever talked about. I've never mentioned my to my parents about having anxiety attacks. I've never mentioned to my parents about going to therapy. And it is very much part of the society that I grew up in, the community, the immigrant community where you don't tell your secrets, you don't complain, you focus. And we are a community, I believe, where we take in, you know, we go through, we have experiences where we take in a lot of, a, a lot of awful things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I watch my parents get taken advantage of, I watch my parents get knocked down, get back up. And they just took that in, they internalize it, and then they move on. They didn't talk about it much. They just knew that they had to get back on their feet because they had to put food on the table, make sure the rent was paid. And so they just moved on and moved forward. And so even in my time of turmoil, I never talked to them about it at that moment, after that moment, or even today. It's so interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking about, I also wrote about my miscarriages, my book, and I never talked to my parents about it. And they too have not said anything to me. And I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this feeling like completely like, wow, this is really strange. Um, But I, I think it's very much a lot of people who have come from immigrant families can absolutely relate to kind of the fact that so many of us kind of... suffer in silence and part of that is because I think we see that our parents have been through so much so like who am I to kind of put more burden upon you but can you connect a little bit for me about how the immigrant expectations that your parents had for you or that you felt like they had for you led you to becoming miserable and sticking at a job that you hated instead of pursuing your passion Yeah, so coming to this country, my parents came to this country, and I'm an immigrant myself. I was a toddler, practically a baby when we came here. And they wanted to be here for the American dream and to achieve whatever that looked like to them. And when they thought about success, they thought you had to be a lawyer, a doctor, engineer. It was very much uh, built in into my immigrant experience. And for them, they were like, okay, our eldest child, you're going to make it. You're going to be really successful. You're going to be a doctor. So that's what was instilled in me for a very long time. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a doctor. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be a doctor. So I spent all of my childhood, my formative years, my high school years, college years going for that task to become a doctor. And then it's, you know, it's not an easy, easy task. You got to do well on the MCATs. You got to get into really good medical schools. And I was stumbling. I didn't make it to a place where I thought that I would be successful in that field. And when that happened, I think you just hit on it, Rashma, which was, I thought I was a big disappointment to my family. They had done so much for me. They had relied or put all of their dreams, their American dreams, their faith, everything on my success. And so when I failed them in my eyes, I thought, wow, okay, how am I, I can't make this better. I don't know how to make this better. Maybe if I'm out of the equation, if I'm out of the picture, then it would be better for them. So that's kind of how I, you know, mentally played with that game in my own head. And that's what led me to a really sad moment in my life. One of the reasons though, I bring it up in the book and I'm so honest and open about it is because Mental health is such a seen as such a stigma, and we do not talk about it in our communities, and not just immigrant communities. I think communities of color. Um, I know in the black community, like you do not talk about getting therapy. You don't talk about taking care of your mental health. Um, 
when you need it. I think people see me when I bump into people that see me on cable news. Uh, I think they think that, oh, wow, you worked in the White House, you're on TV, you're so successful, everything must have worked out so well. So I thought this story coming from me and being honest about it might help others. Yeah, And um, that's one of the reasons why I brought it to light, essentially, and told my story in the hopes that it would help people and talk about a stigma that truly exists yeah. in many communities. I know. I'm sure a lot of people are listening to you and relating. Can I ask you a question? Did your parents ever say to you, I'm disappointed, you've let me down? Or was that like a narrative that you felt in your head when you were like at your breaking point? And so this is the amazing thing. My parents have been absolutely and always wonderful in lifting me up and telling me that I could accomplish anything. So the narrative that was out there, I was putting in my own head. I created that narrative. It wasn't, they never said to me, my parents never said to me that they were disappointed in me. I think there were moments where they were hoping, you know, when I when I didn't go to medical school, they were like, oh, no, we, we don't want you to stop there. And I promised them that I would go to grad school, which I did. But they've never said, you have been a disappointment. We can't believe what you've done, just done. It's never been those words. They have never used those words in my development, in my career, even when I went into politics and they were like, what is going on? Right. <laughs> and they didn't quite get it. They never said they were disappointed. They were just not understanding why I took that path. Yeah. And it's, I think in many ways, like our parents become a stand in for our own feelings of inadequacy. So, you have this horrible thing happen. What was the next step, right? How did you, what was your journey in getting care? And, you know, what did, how did the support you need look like? So it took some time because I didn't get support right away. Um, it took, it took me just digging deep, digging in deep with myself and trying to surely slowly move forward in my own kind of how do I get past this and um but it's so interesting because I had never gotten help I, at that moment at that time I didn't get help for years and I didn't really talk to anyone that it resurfaced to having these anxiety attacks mm. I think that's what was connected to my anxiety attacks because I wasn't dealing with deep kind of sadness and hurt that I was feeling from years prior and also from my childhood. And um, so when it manifested in that way during during my grad school years, when the pressure was on um, and you're trying to do really well, and I was is having, I talk about this also in details in my book, um, when I was having, like I said, these anxiety attacks, that's when I finally said to myself, I need to talk to someone. And that was the beauty of being in college at the time because I there was a place to go. It was pretty easy. Um, there was the student, you know, student services, yep. they had, you know, they have someone, you know, people on, on campus to talk to if you're going through something. And so that's where I went and had the, the tough conversations, did a couple of sessions right there at the university. And then I decided to get a therapist on my own and I, and I stuck with it for years. And so that is what helped me is 
reaching out, finding someone to talk to, and taking care of my own mental health. Um, another thing too that I have done throughout my uh, high school and adult life is run. Running has always mm, been therapeutic me for me. Yep. Yeah, there's something about it. At least mm-hmm. for me, I leave everything behind. I don't have any, uh, you know, no no phone, no nothing that's going to distract me. And I just go for that run. And it is cathartic. It helps me clear my mind, clear my thoughts, and just be in the moment. Like I said, it took a few years and and it manifested in anxiety attacks. And I had to, that's when I realized I had to really talk to someone. Yeah. And I did. What about now? Are you still talking to a therapist? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Today, it's a totally different ball game. I mean, you know, it's been it's been almost two decades. I take really good care of myself. I have my own family. I have my, you know, we have our own kid. And so my family's therapeutic. I go to therapy. I talk things out. I go for my run. And I, I feel incredibly healthy, mentally healthy. I think one of the questions that I get a lot is, have you resolved Um, Mm. what you were going through, those dark times. I don't think you ever resolve things. I think you can get to the other side of it and you deal with it in real deep way. But I don't know if you ever resolve it, uh, at least for me, talking for myself, but I've gotten to the other end, right? I've gotten through the other side of things, which is, I think, very important. So I, I also kind of like to go deep when something's bothering me, right? And I do think that a lot of people don't like to get into their heads. Um, and I think it's something that you seem to be okay with. I do also do it while I'm on my runs. You don't know, ask myself, mm-hmm. why am I feeling this way? What does that really mean? Why is that showing up for me? But I think the one thing is, you know, given that a lot of this happened for you when you were young and also kind of around family is I still am very... I don't confront my family in the way that I know that I need to. Like, I don't ask them, you know, I know you know that I've had miscarriages. Why didn't you ever ask me how I felt? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I still think that there's a lot I don't, I don't touch yet. And I, I do often wonder when that day will eventually come where my parents will pass. And there were so many unresolved questions and conversations. Like, how am I going to feel then? You know, that's such a great question, because in writing the book, a couple of things happened uh, besides being honest and open and sharing some of my deep, deep uh, stories. I also got to interview my mom Mm. because also in our family, there are these secrets, right? I think many families has these things, these secrets that kind of become folklore. Like you don't know what's true. You don't know what's not true. And no one talks about it, right? Somebody spills the beans. They tell a little bit of it and then you never hear anything else about it and so in writing the memoir part of the book I also wanted to tell my mom's story because it's very much connected to clearly my story and kind of how we ended up in this country really and um, and so I got to interview my mom about her childhood because I remember her telling me that she lost her mom when she was very young and then I found out that she had a twin that died I found out that she lived in an orphanage I wow. found out you know how my my brother her eldest child died um, I found out that she actually met her biological mother and how that went. And um, and so there's always this part of us, of me and my siblings, where we don't know our cousins, mm-hmm. our aunts. There's no extended family that's blood-related to us. 
So there were all these questions that I had that we all had. And so I got to interview her, probably did about six or seven interviews. And you know, Reshma, what she said to me was when we first started talking, she said that, wow, I can't believe I'm telling you my story. She thought, she said to me, I thought that I would take these stories to my grave. Yep. And she had never planned to tell them. Did she think you weren't interested in hearing them or did she just feel like not just think that she had to keep them buried? I think it was too painful. Mm. I think they were too painful. She put it to the back of her head and she just didn't want to conjure up those feelings. And maybe some parts of her, she was ashamed Um, parts of it that she thought she didn't want her kids to know about this side, this part of her. Um, And so when I showed that I really wanted to know, I really wanted to talk about it, and I told her, I want to tell your story too in my book, then she opened up. And I remember our last conversation when I checked in with her and I said, hey, you know, this is going to be our last conversation. Just want to make sure you're okay with what I'm going, what's in the book, what's going to be in the book that people will read. And she said to me, you know, my mom is ultra religious. She's, right. she's conservative. She's religious. It's, it's very much part of that immigrant experience too, I would say. And she said, A couple of months ago, she had thought about what she had told me, and she said that she wasn't comfortable and that she was worried about what was going to be out there. Mm. And so she said she prayed on it. She said, I prayed on it, and I'm in a place where I'm now good. And so she said to me, I feel good about you sharing this in the book. And so those are, so I got to tell um, and learn about these secrets, these quote unquote folklores that we thought they were. And um, it actually, I love my mom dearly, but I got to know her a little bit better and who she is as a person, how she navigates through life makes so much more sense yeah. after revealing these secrets yeah it's so powerful i'm so happy that you got that chance uh and the courage to like have that conversation with her do you think that your family's gonna are you gonna have secrets too no no i mean it's all in the book so (laughs) (laughs) it's hard it's hard to have secrets (laughs) so you mentioned your partner and that your mom was conservative how was that Mm mm-hmm now it's amazing. It, 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 she she she's evolved. You know, when I, I talk about my coming out story mm-hmm. as well, um, when I was sixteen, I came out. My mom took that very very badly, and I went back into the closet, and didn't come out back out for probably another ten years. Wow! And wasn't able to be open and really honest about who I was for some time. And it's it's it's. All has all that has changed. She is very supportive of us. She loves, loves her grandchild and couldn't be prouder of my partner and myself and our family. And that has been an amazing evolution because I would have never, ever have thought my mom would be where she is in this openness and this open-mindedness 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because she was, uh, like I said, very conservative and not open to that. Just her reaction when I came out when I was 16 years old. So what advice do you feel like you have for people who might be struggling with some of these issues that might be causing um, the deterioration of their mental health? You know, what, what advice do you have for them? You know, and I know it's easy to say and, and maybe hard to do for people, but seek help. I think 
that um, for me, I, I had this narrative of, oh, you know, I'm not loved or I'm not going to be missed. And, you know, if I remove myself from this equation, people will feel better. And it was such a false narrative. It was a made up narrative. And that's what I want people to know is that people love you. People want the best for you. And if you can, I urge you to seek some help, try and find someone to talk to. And, you know, for for living in your truth, I feel so much freedom in living in my truth and being able to be who I am. And here's the thing, luckily in 2019, so much has changed, still a lot of work to be done, especially if you think about the transgender community and what's happening. Um, there's still a lot to be done. But we do have marriage equality, who, who would have thought we would be talking about that. And so there are things that uh, that has made this place of being out a better a better place. There, there's nothing like living in my truth and just being honest. And it just has made my life better and made me better. So, how can people follow you and support your work? Oh wow! So I um, I am on social media all the time. <laughs> Probably at my peril, <laughs> at my peril, probably. So they could catch me on uh, on uh, Twitter at K underscore Jean-Pierre with no hyphen in the Jean-Pierre. So it's J-E-A-N-P-I-E-R-R-E, the same for Instagram. And you could buy my book, Moving Forward. You can get it everywhere and anywhere. It's a coming of age story. Uh, I talk about some hard things that I think is very important, but it's also a call to action, um, asking people to get involved um, in, in politics, get involved in the political system, and how important that's going to be in 2020. But um, but I'm out there. So yeah, follow me and I, I will try to uh, inform and tell you only the facts. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was a conversation with Corinne Jean-Pierre, author of the new book, Moving Forward. If you or someone you know needs support or is having thoughts of self-harm, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-TALK. It's a 24-hour hotline that can help connect you to resources and support you in a crisis situation. You could also reach out to the crisis text line. That number is 741 741- 741. In just a minute, I'm going to answer some really thoughtful questions you've been sending in about mental health. Stick around. So are you looking for something to listen to in between episodes of Brave Not Perfect? Hungry for some more courageous feminist voices? Tune in to Popaganda, Bitch Media's twice-monthly feminist pop culture podcast. Popaganda's glamour season is streaming now. It'll explore feminist fashion, witchy beauty rituals, the death of diet culture, and more. This show is hosted by the feminist writer, editor, and digital media superstar, Carmen Rios. She's spent over 10 years talking back from the feminist front lines. Propaganda features feminist activists, thinkers, and legends alike. Each episode grapples with the urgency of a feminist future, and it charts a course towards cultural change which is what we desperately need. Don't just sit pretty. Subscribe to Propaganda Today wherever you get your feminist fix to make sure you don't miss a minute of the glamorous stuff yet to come. So we're back. And my podcast producer, Ashley, is here for my favorite part of the show, 
answering your questions. Hey, Reshma, it's so great to be here. We've had a lot of folks writing in with questions about mental health, and so Mm -hmm. I thought today would be a really good time to tackle those. All right, let's get to it. So a few people have written in with a really big question, um, and it has to do with how to discuss mental illness with your family. And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about starting that conversation and advice. Yeah, I think the first thing is recognizing that you're not alone. You know, I talk about this in my book that women uh, suffer from anxiety and depression at twice the rate of men, right? So the likelihood that somebody in your family, like somebody in your friend group, the person who sits next to you at work, the likelihood that she too is going through what you are is pretty high. And I think vulnerability is, is really powerful. So I think it's first recognizing that you're not alone. I think the second thing is thinking about how could you tell your family how to support you? Like, what do you need from them? You know, maybe it is actual, you know, tangible support. Maybe it's them just kind of stepping back, right? So I think it's like being very clear about what it is that you need. Yeah, and I think having a plan of support in case they don't react in a way that's helpful for you. Making sure that you can get out of there quickly, that you have a friend you can call, that you have a therapist appointment that's coming up, especially if you're worried about it. I think that having a plan of support is really important. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and so one of the people who wrote in with that question specifically identified herself as a South Asian woman and wanted advice for discussing mental health with their parents. You know, do you have any advice that speaks to the unique challenges of that situation? Oof, I can't even imagine having a conversation with my mother about this. Look, I think culturally we're raised to not talk about this stuff. So like the likelihood of their parents saying something that's either offensive or like dismissive is probably high, and that's probably what she's afraid of. Again, though, go from a place of like, I'm going to tell you what I need and like, I'm going to assume that you might not say the right thing, um, but I'm going to less worry about you and I'm going to more worry about myself. Yeah, definitely. I think that was really good advice. So our next question has to do with anxiety and self-doubt. Someone wrote in asking how they can manage criticism from others that makes them feel like an imposter, especially at a job or an industry. Do you have any advice for them? <laughs> yes. I feel like so much of like what stands in the way between women and our fullest potential and our biggest dreams like is that voice in our head that tells us that we're not good enough, that we're not smart enough, that we're not ready. And so, so much of this podcast and my book is about this journey, but how do you tell that voice to like, shut the fuck up? Because we are ready and we are smart and we are prepared and we are qualified. Um, And so it's just we have literally been socialized our whole lives in many ways to kind of doubt ourselves and to not celebrate our biggest accomplishments. Um, And so imposter syndrome is real. But I think the answer is not to take another class or get more qualified or get more prepared. It's really about how to tell that voice to shut up. Yeah, I think that's such good advice for managing that voice in your head. Now, what about when that criticism is coming from the outside? How do you manage that? I think it's also about believing in yourself. You know, when I started Girls Who Code, there were people who said to me, that's a bad idea. Like, girls Mm -hmm. will never learn how to code. And so there's always going to be haters, right? There's always going to be people who tell you not to do it or you're not ready or, like, wait your turn in line, as I said in my first book. So I think that you have to really have an extraordinary amount of belief in yourself 
and like the idea so you can separate the haters from people who are actually really trying to give you feedback that's for you because they care about you. Yeah, a lot of the time when, at least when I get feedback and criticism, it's because people believe in me and are trying to support me getting better. And so is the criticism that or is it someone being unkind and kind of taking the good criticism that you get and leaving the rest behind? Yeah, Ash, I think that's so on point. Like, you know, I always use this example, like Serena Williams or every incredible athlete. Like they have a coach who's telling them, do it again, do it again, do it again. Like you don't get better unless you get feedback, unless you get negative criticism or unless you get, you know what I mean, um, someone telling you that that wasn't amazing. Like, it's so funny. I'm like in this process right now where I'm trying to teach my son this because all he wants to do is win. And so he really struggles when we play. <laughs> we were playing like Zingo last night and he just hates to lose. And I, I keep saying to him over and over again, like, you have to lose to get better, right? You have to get mm-hmm. feedback and critiques to get better. And it, so it's such an important, important lesson, but it's, it is also also important separating right a critique from someone who's jealous or envious or they're you know what I mean Absolutely. have an ulterior motive yeah take that criticism that's helpful for your growth and just leave the rest of it behind so shifting gears a little bit um, several people also wrote in with the next question and I think your guidance on this is going to be helpful to a lot of listeners okay I'm excited to hear they wanted to know and I also want to know uh, what tips you have to say no when the things that people are asking you are taking away from your mental health and well-being. I mean, this is a big one for, I think, so many of us, right, where we are so afraid to say no, and saying yes all the time is making us exhausted. And if we said no a little bit more and took some time for ourselves, we really could deal with some of the anxiety and depression that many of us feel. I have like basically said that 2020 is my year of no. So I'm really in like the thick of really, really, really trying to practice this. So listen, I think when something comes your way or someone asks you something, you have to do a calculation. Like, do I really want to do this? Or am I saying yes because I don't? I feel guilty or bad or because I don't want that person to be mad at me? And I think that's where it starts, is really asking yourself that question. Like, are you excited about this opportunity? Are you excited to help your friend clean their apartment? Are you excited, right, to take on that extra assignment that your colleague doesn't have time to do? Or are you, like, begrudgingly doing it because you're afraid to say no? Absolutely. A few episodes ago with the Stop People Pleasing episode, we had Professor Vanessa Bonds on and she talked about making a list of things that you're saying yes to. So you you can look at that and say, look, I've said yes to all these things. I can say no. I'm doing my part. You know, it's so you know, it's funny because people always tease me like I'm obsessed with my calendar. And so I'm always looking and editing my calendar. And I do that because one, I need to remind myself, oh, look, I have 10 meetings and in for the next five nights, every night I've committed to doing something. So that means I need to take this day off. That day. We've talked to a lot of guests, right, Ashley, who've said, in 2019, I worked every single day. I didn't have a weekend off. And I think that that very easily happens to us as women because we don't say no. And before we know it, like, wow, I haven't slept more than six hours a night, or I haven't watched a movie, or I haven't had a dinner date with my partner, or I haven't, you know, like all these things that we know recharge us have suddenly disappeared from our lives and our calendars because we've been saying yes to things that we don't need to say yes to. Yeah, and I think that we really need to try to say no before it's really affecting our well-being in that kind of way. Yeah, what I've been really trying to do is like try to say no without feeling bad. 
You know what I mean? Because <laughs> sometimes people will come back and be like, really? Are you sure you can't blah? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, get you back in. And so you got to be firm with your nose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I think that that was some really good advice. I appreciate it. I'm sure a lot of our listeners appreciate it. Um, and that's all the time that we have for today. Ooh, see you guys later. Keep sending me your questions. I love to get them. And I love being able to share with you like what I've learned in my life, what incredible people have taught me so that I can help you be more brave. If you're struggling with something and you want advice, send me an email at bravenotperfect at girlswhocode.com or even leave a voicemail at 347-76-BRAVE. And I might answer your question on the show. Okay, everybody. Coming up on the next episode of Brave Not Perfect, Reshma's going to have a powerful conversation with Jessamine Stanley. She's this amazing body positivity advocate and yoga teacher. And that conversation is going to touch on fitness, inclusivity, and cultural appropriation. I absolutely did not feel as though I belonged even in the lobby of the yoga studio when I first started. Now, you're not going to want to miss that conversation. So make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Brave Not Perfect comes out every other Tuesday. Today's episode of Brave Not Perfect was produced by me, Ashley Dejan, with support from my co-producers, Tanya Zabronik and Charlotte Stone. We, of course, could not do it without support from Deborah Singer and Jenny Josephson. And I also want to give a very big and very special shout out to Zendale Skylark. She does so much great work for us. Every single episode, she's designing images to share on social media. And you might have noticed that our main podcast image changed a little while ago. That was all her. And it looks killer. Thank you, Zenzle. Okay, everyone. Reshma and I will see you in two weeks. Bye.